0: So in this section, we are confronted with something that we as Americans don't deal well with. And admittedly, it's not something that I deal well with. We're we're confronted with uh, this plain and challenging statement that we as Christians are to rejoice in our sufferings. To rejoice in our sufferings. When we think about suffering, the first thing that I think about when I when there's a potential of any kind of suffering, the first thing that I have, I have a, a mechanism with inside me, is to leave. My wife answered that question. <laughs> we either, a lot of us have, have either a fight or a flight mechanism. When we hear about suffering, most of us say, get me out of Dodge. I I don't want to, it's going to be painful, it's going to be difficult, and I don't want to be in the midst of that at all. So the first thing that I want to do in the midst of any kind of suffering is get out of it. I want to run for the hills. I want to go to a a safer, more comfortable, a more peaceful, a more pleasant, green pasture kind of place. You know, after all, it's been promised to us in uh, Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me through you know, to these green pastures. He, he gives me, lets me drink by these really pleasant streams of water. And it's, it's really encouraging and it's really blessed. But we forget the rest of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And so many of us want to fly and escape any kind of suffering or pain. And we've got to understand, Paul makes these comments in the midst of a context. It's it's not just kind of plucked out of the sky and say, hey, suck it up, deal with your suffering. No, it's in a context. You see in verses 1, 2, and 3 that we are justified. Whoever is in Christ, you are justified. All of us are. We also see that we have peace with God. All of us have peace with God. We also see that all of our sins are pardoned. The sins of all of us are gone. We also see that we are anticipating the glory of God. All of us. And then we have that statement. We also are to rejoice in our sufferings. All of us. This is the characteristic, friends, of every Christian. Every Christian. None of us are exempt from it. In our sufferings, there are sound out kind of notes of joy, and there's sound out notes of praise in the midst of our suffering. Not after we have come through them, but in the midst of going through them, there are these shout out notes of joy and praise and I think it's what makes the very score of music, the music of our lives even more beautiful and dramatic, is in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the sorrow and the difficult areas of our life, there are those highlights of joy and praise. Then you know what happens? We, somehow we feel convicted of our failure to rejoice in those Rough times, right? It's like, man, why why don't I feel joy? Why don't I feel this kind of praise going on? So what do we do? We exercise some some kind of self-justification. In the midst of my pain, I'm not rejoicing. I'm not feeling joy. So I've got to find some way to explain away that problem. We go through some kind of self-justification. That is, it's quite rational if you would just think about it. Why I am not rejoicing these days. And we often are pretty good about giving our list. You know, here's here's my five reasons why I'm not rejoicing in the midst of this, this sorrow, this pain, this suffering. We find excuses and maybe even somehow we find theological excuses for why we're failing to rejoice during the winter dry months of our lives. So what I want to do before jumping into the text is I want to give some of the excuses that we often give. See if you can identify. And I want to do this, do this when dealing personally with discouraged Christians. Those of you who might find, might find yourself in a dry or frustrating kind of place. This is, this is for you, but this is also for those of us who will be going through a dry, suffering, painful place. And you know who that's going to be? All of you. It is vitally important that we understand this. So let's begin by remembering just some of the facts about Christians in trouble. Here's the first thing. This is the big one. I think I got four or five. One is how Christians may not respond during testing times. This is how you may not respond. Here's the first one. We may not blame our temperaments or our past for our failure to rejoice. We can't blame our past or our temperaments. This is just how I'm wired. We may excuse ourselves by saying that our feelings are inescapable consequences of our circumstances, that we have a particular type of temperament as our family has before us, if you, if you met my family, you would understand. This is just kind of how we're wired. How many of us kind of point back to our mom and our dad, our grandpa and grandma, our uncles and aunts, our line, our, our lineage, and say, just look back. This, this is why I'm reacting the way I am today. It, to a certain extent, it's true, right? We all kind of inherit, and we've, we've been kind of shaped by the way our parents have raised us, our grandparents raised them, our great-grandparents. There's kind of a line of the way that we kind of act. We all have kind of different personalities. But here, hear this. A group of Christians is not like a sheet of postage stamps where each and every one is exactly identical. We're all different, right? But feelings, which are a result of upbringing and temperament, or circumstances, that may not dictate us to be exactly like that page of stamps. We cannot say that, well, my parents are like this, so therefore I am like this. Why? Because we're not trapped. We're not trapped. We are not slaves to our feelings. There's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's there's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And every Christian who has received Christ as God's gift, there is an extra dimension of power to overcome the weakness of our temperament. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Glory. You have been given the Holy Spirit and He is dwelling within you. How long do we have to complain about, oh, that's just who I am. Oh, that's right. Christ in me. That's right. The Holy Spirit is dwelling and empowering and living in me. That enables us to have peace and joy irrespective of any of our circumstances Christ in me he gladly laid down his life joyfully set aside the glories of heaven for what purpose for me in the midst of suffering the Christian is blessed with having a bigger picture and having the promise that there is no trial that can come to us but what every Christian experiences. And that God will, will with that trial, make a way of escape. And, And we are able to bear it. We are able to stand up underneath this trial, this pain, this challenge. We're able to stand up underneath it. So our lacking of rejoicing, cannot be blamed on our circumstances or on our personality. That's one when, when you hear somebody just say, well, you know, that's when you go, uh hold on a second. You've forgotten one very critical thing. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. Another thing that we may not do in the midst of our, our trials and our temptations and our, our suffering is that we may not blame our heavy duties our heavy circumstances we cannot blame those things paul was writing to the roman church that congregation there and it was comprised of all kinds of different people all kinds of them nine out of ten people that you would meet in rome during that time nine out of ten that's a high high percentage that's what what percentage math 90 good was that bob Good, now, you you're a forte. <laughs> Nine out of ten of those people walking the streets of Rome at that time would have been slaves. So can you imagine what the church would have been compromised of? Nine out of ten of the people in that church would have been slaves. Therefore, it would have been very likely that a large percentage of these people would have been hearing it through that lens. So they had no rights of their own. They had no rights of their own. In fact, they received far worse treatment than animals receive in our society today. Those of you who are pet lovers, you love your cat and your dog, your gerbil, your whatever you own more than, and you give them more rights and privileges than what those Roman slaves would have received. So for most of these people, life was not a bed of roses, but an exceedingly hard life of bondage. And th- it was no excuse for Paul. He was saying there was no excuse for any kind of self-pity. There's no excuse for depression. Slavery did, was not an exemption. It would give permission for a Christian to not rejoice in their sufferings. There was no permission. Remember the great words that he said to them? He said, bond Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would with Christ. Not by one of eye service as people pleasers, but as a bondservant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So we can't look at our cir- circumstances and say, well, I, I've got a heavy job or I've got heavy circumstances and blame it on that. No, it, it's just not permissible. We cannot blame those things. But we also see that the apostle was also, we can't blame it on the apostle Paul being this highfalutin kind of theological type who is writing, writing down to the church and saying, do these things. He, Paul was demanding from the readers what he also was expecting from himself. In other words, Paul practiced what he preached. He didn't just expect the people in the Roman church to hear these words and apply them to themselves. He also applied them to himself. For, two, for years he was in the Roman prison. Years! He was isolated and he was awaiting The chopping block. He was waiting for it. But if you look at the book of Acts, you'll see that he was always rejoicing. Listen to this from Acts chapter 16. I want you to kind of picture it in your mind's eye of how this is working out in this Roman prison. And when they were afflicted with many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So after they had had the tar beaten out of them, thrown into prison unjustly, what did they do? They broke out into a good old Gaither hymn sing, is what they did. It, It was almost like Paul was saying, so Silas, what do you want to sing next? Does, does anybody know who the Gators are, by the way? Okay, a few of us do. Okay, just making sure. Contextualize your sermon, Paul. <laughs> Could you imagine? Paul is saying to Silas, what should we sing next? And Silas says, how about we sing Psalm 100? Good, good. All the people that one earth on one earth do dwell, do sing to the Lord with a cheerful voice. They're singing out those things. And all the prisoners and the governors soon would be converted All those who were listening in the prison received it, and they believed it. And again, in Colossians 1.24, Paul says, Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in Philippians 4.10, he says, I have rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have received your concern for me. Paul practiced what he preached. So it's not like this, this really lofty kind of idea of of rejoicing in the midst of suffering. Paul's going, no, this is what we do. Follow me. Look at what I'm doing. Rejoice in prison on your deathbed when you're waiting the chopping block. Sing songs to the Lord. Rejoice in your suffering. The next one is we see that in many parts of the scripture, that peace with God and joy in suffering. Peace with God and joy in suffering are combined in the life of a, of a believer. They're not two separate things. They're joined together and they overlap each other all the time. You see it particularly in the Old Testament. For example, Genesis chapter 32. You all know the story, right? Didn't think so? So it's the story of Jacob. Jacob had kind of betrayed his brother, tricked his brother, and his brother was really upset. And he was going to reconcile with his brother, and he was going to meet them. All of Jacob's family was on his way to meet his brother Esau. And he knew his brother Esau was angry and had every right to be angry. So here's what it, where it says, Genesis chapter 3, what it says. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. Could you imagine his heart right now just kind of beating? And there are 400 men with them. (laughs) Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. He was really practically thinking, right, in the midst of his fear. He's going, okay, so what do we do in the midst of suffering and fear and trials? Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. There was a necessary tension and a planning as this threat drew near, and it was a good thinking. But in the end, as we're going to see later, he came to a place of resting and trusting God. There was peace with God where he knew that he was Perfectly secure in the hands of God. Again, you, you see it in David as he was hounded time after time, hounded by Saul, right? And yet he writes these words of Psalm 27 that have been a comfort for Christians for over 4,000 years. It says this the Lord is my light and my salvation. What's the next phrase? Anybody know? Uh, what was it? Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my life and my salvation. Wh- whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And this—that that is the rejoicing in suffering. And again, what did Job say in his troubles? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Then in the New Testament, we read of of Stephen's persecutions, right? The sufferings, where at the final moments of his life when he was going to be stoned for what they believed to be heresy, there were men who were taking large sharp stones, lifting them up to throw down on his body. And there, what does he say in the midst of these of, of stoning? Scripture says in Acts chapter seven, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, don't forget that, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We're told that Stephen's face was shining like an angel. And again, Peter wrote to the early Christians in 1 in, uh, Peter, who were in exile, and they were suffering. He said, in this you rejoice, though for a little while now, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith We quickly forget that, right? In the midst of our sorrows and our suffering and our pain, we are to have this inexpressible joy. I, I can't even explain it. Away, oh, Jesus, and it's filled with glory. In other words, it's pointing back ultimately to not to me and my strength and my power. It's pointing back to God and his strength and his provision, his promises, his faithfulness. We also see, last one, what we may not do, we, we cannot say, well, that was then, this is now. We, we also have to remember the, in the history of the church, all the way down to the time of the early Christians, to even present day right now, we meet re- the rejoicing of ordinary, common people during persecution. There are little known men and women who do not make a single claim of importance of any kind, who were not dynamic preachers or scholars or theologians or authors, but faithful, common followers of Jesus Christ all the way to death, common people. So, this kind of speaking is not just for those, those big ivory tower, big thinker kind of people. No, these are for common everyday people. There is no epic, no epic grandeur about their life. There is, even in their death, they will soon be forgotten. They loved their spouses, they loved their children. They were hardworking, common folk who loved their Savior most of all. This week I, I took time to read the Box, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Oh my gosh. Read it. Read about the saints of old who have gone before us. I've read about the sufferings and the subsequent rejoicings. So they're tied together, they're conjoined together. That took place during the English Reformation. And as I read it, I was convicted. These were just common everyday men and women. Men like Rawlings White, who was a fisherman; John Newman, who was a pewterer; he worked with pewter, you know; and George Tankerfield, who was a cook; Joan Waste, uh, who was a poor, honest woman, blind from birth, unmarried, and at the age of 22, she was burned at the stake. John Knowles, who was uh, Knowles, who was a shoemaker, and and Richard Sharp, who was a weaver. All these people, because of their faith in Christ, gladly embraced suffering, and in their suffering, and even at their death, burning at the stake, or off with the head, were singing psalms. Singing psalms! What would most of us be doing? Pleading for our life, right? Oh, <laughs> I'll do whatever. But they were gladly singing. They, they took their psalm books with them. And one of their last things, as they were singing and praying, they would throw their psalm book out to somebody else to pass it along. These people were witnesses. People who witnessed this testified in all these different circumstances, in the midst of all these persecutions. In midst of all these horrid deaths, that there was peace and joy that was from God that held them together. And almost the the people who were onlookers were just like, how is this happening? How is this even possible? So I mention this point so that we don't dismiss sufferings as something that doesn't apply to us as normal, everyday, ordinary people. Or else we can find ourselves excusing our unhappiness and suffering by saying, well, those were special people. Those were elite people. Those were people who were different than us. We've got to remember that Jesus, before he died, expressly tells us that this peace and this joy would be ours. So also, you you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take that joy from you. So the joy is yours in the midst of your suffering. It's yours to have. No one will take it from you. No, not one. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have much tribulation, but take heart. For I have overcome the world. This is the normal Christian reality. So whatever the world may do to us, our Lord is saying to us, in effect, that the peace he gives is greater than the peace that the world offers. I've got something better. I've got something more powerful. As Matthew Henry wrote, great Puritan, he said this, There is enough in God to furnish us with joy in the worst circumstances on the earth. There's enough in God to supply each and every one of you with joy in your, in our worst circumstances. Then there's the question, so how do we rejoice in tribulation, right? What what does our text tell you? In the first two verses of the chapter, it's the foundation for helping us understand how this rejoicing comes about. It says, therefore, since you have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we are now standing and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In these verses it reminds us of the greatness of which this has happened to us through Christ Jesus. And we have found peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and we are meant to know this peace daily, moment by moment. In verses 3 to 5, just share the great benefits of even suffering there's benefits to suffering so what are these precious lessons learned kind of in verses 3 4 and 5 it's kind of a chain reaction the first thing that we see now we're getting to the text right first thing that we see is that suffering produces what come on it produces endurance we are regularly told to keep in an appointment if you will In God's gymnasium, in God's gym, the Lord has taken the responsibility of becoming our personal trainer in the midst of suffering. He will strengthen those areas of weakness that are in our lives. And how does he do that? Does he wrap us up in bubble wrap? Does he put us in a a nice little bubble to keep us safe and secure? Does he put us on bed rest so that we don't have to encounter these things? No, that would be disastrous. How does he do it? It is by exercising our whole nature so that our attitudes and our feelings and our affections are strengthened. We are not made perfect in this life, but we are renewed daily. That requires work and exercise. The living God exercises and strengthens the faith of his people. The pressures and trials that come to us are the same kind of pressures and struggles that came to our Lord. We don't find ourselves struggling. Our, our weaknesses of faith is, is just exposed and by itself. No. The reality is that these very same things Christ struggled with. Many of us feel like, man, I, I, I don't think that my faith can cope with any of this thing. Some of us think, ah, my faith can cope with it all. And all of a sudden we find out, no, it can't. I'm falling apart. But what we need to do is we need to see, find ourselves falling afresh as we appear before God. Peer. And how do we appear before God? Man, just sometimes we're just tiny specks. We're, we're helpless. And we are in dire need of his grace again. We're in dire need of his strength to help us through. So what do we do? We must find ourselves, we must kind of appropriate, we must find ourselves in need of that personal trainer again, who is our Lord. We must run to, if you will, his gym. We must go back to the hearing of the the scriptures being preached faithfully, time and time again. And then remember what Job's response was? In Genesis chapter 32? That's right, you don't. So let me tell you. This is what happened in in Genesis 32. This is what Jacob did. He said, O God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. And what does he say after that? So he reminds God what he said. He says, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. He addresses the reality in his heart. And that he may come and attack me, the mothers with their children. But I but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the offspring as the sand of the sea, which shall be numbered, cannot be numbered for a multitude. So Jacob, what did he do? He went back to the God of his covenant. And he dares to remind God of his promises. Just because you remind God of his promises found in Scripture doesn't mean it's an automatic, well, I'm going to name this promise and it's automatically mine. Right? Because God works in different ways in different times to encourage you, to strengthen you, to make you rely on him more and more and more. So as Jacob was reminding himself and reminding God of his promises, his faith deepens in trust. God, I don't know how this is going to work out. I had no clue what tomorrow is going to bring. But I trust you. We must, though, remind God of his promises. And it's not like he's going to forget. It's more of a way of reminding us of God's promises. Didn't you say that you'd never forsake me? Didn't you promise all things would work together for my good? Haven't you said that all grace will always abound for me? We we dare to remind God of what he said, but then we must go back to the cross and we must see God there in Jesus' suffering for our sake. God was making his own son to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He has fulfilled his promises in Christ. This is faith in action. It's appropriating, again, our our personal trainer, Jesus Christ himself. Teach me, Lord. Teach me how to deal with these rough passages in my life in light of the cross. Teach me. And then we, we will find the endurance again to go on. We'll meet our wonderful counselor afresh. We will find new strength in Christ. We will find new grace from him in order to get through because he went through so much more by the given strength of the same given God. This is why the Apostle Paul said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In weakness. Second thing we see here in this link in the chain is that endurance produces character. One commentator said, has kind of an interesting opinion about this this word character and that it is uh, used for a veteran soldier as opposed to a fresh green recruit. So what's happening to us is God has been exercising us through suffering. The experience has given us the character of a battle scarred veteran who has gone through many campaigns as opposed to a raw recruit who has not seen a thing. The veteran has taken off all of his his armor while the recruit is trying on his uniform and picking up his his rifle for the very first time. And under fire, he has proved in many skirmishes that the the wisdom of his captain who has led and protected him in battle and he has gained strength through endurance. You look at many of the the generals. These are men who are are wise because of what they have been through, what they have seen on the field. And there is a a great amount of wisdom. We we can go back over things in our lives and we know that we have had this experience just like what the Apostle was saying. And we're not talking about it theoretically. We know that God is at work in our lives. Therefore, the Holy Spirit within us is taking us through these trials, through these temptations, through this suffering, so that gradually we become more and more like Christ. Our character becomes more like Christ's character. So enduring and pushing through and trusting in God, we become more like Christ. We take on His character, trusting His Father, trusting our Father. We also see that character produces a growing hope. It's not sometimes an automatic. It's a a growing hope. We are God's people, and He's dealing with us as sons and daughters. And if you have a son or daughter, you know it's a a growing and an ongoing thing in life, right? It's not like immediately they become perfect and really... Actually, it, it never really happens. It's an ongoing process. God is teaching us daily to depend on him and to experience his life in us as his children. We can look back and we can see God that God was faithful to us in the past and he'll be faithful to us in the present. Our experience of the peace of God confirms God's promises, God's care and God's grace. I grew up singing, um, singing this hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Anybody else? There, there's a phrase in there. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. And then you get the roar. Praise thy faithfulness. We, we, if we find we are blessing God for all that has happened in our lives. Even in the pain and the sorrow, we are finding, ah, In the midst of this, great is thy faithfulness. And I'm finding as I look back in the past, I see your hand. All that I needed, your hand has provided. All. Not just my my little things. He's provided even the big things. Blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. We are saying that we can thank God for it all. He's been disciplining us for our good. And we know the trials are for a purpose. And we may share even in the holiness of God. Listen to David's words of hope. After all the testings in his life, he he said this, And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a future. What a Hope that he has after and in the midst of his trials. So it's not just the past, it's the present. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a future! Listen to Paul's words of hope in 2 Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown. Laid up for me, that's future, right? He has laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. So there's that that future growing hope as we reflect on God's faithfulness. It's a growing hope. And all the trials that he has endured built up that hope of what was lying before him. And then Paul says, and that hope will not disappoint us. That hope will not disappoint us. It won't betray us by showing that it's an illusion, that it's a mirage. No, this hope is no fantasy, but how do we know this? What is the ultimate ground on which our Christian hope exists? What is our hope of glory? And this leads us to our last and final phrase. God's love has been poured out on us. The ultimate ground on which our hope rests is the steadfast love of God. The reason our hope will never let us down is that God has never let us down. His love never, never, never will give up on us. Heaven's floodgates, think about this, have opened wide and the flow has been trained upon the earth The church worldwide, gates have been opened up, the flood of God's love has been poured out on the church worldwide, and here now it comes right into our particular lives, washing and refreshing and irrigating our very hearts. The love of God has been doing this. It's been poured out on us. We are loved by our Heavenly Father, and at the very center of our personalities it's happening. The the very disposition, the the complex part of our heart, our ourselves that is called our hearts and then it goes not only into our hearts but into our entire life it saturates us into every nook and cranny every day our wills and our feelings are flooded with the love of god or should be this is not just our working out the implications of our faith it's not the result of just a process of training and learning to see God's love. No. This is something which is added directly and personally by the Father through the Spirit. God is pouring out His love on you. It's not dependent on what you see or don't see. It's happening. It's real. It is something supernatural which God Himself sovereignly gives us, particularly when we have to suffer gratefully greatly for the gospel the realization of such love such a love of god lifts us beyond our circumstances so that in the midst of them we are filled with the sense of his loving care with his joy and his peace the reality is is that we have looked for relief elsewhere right every one of us Starting with me, I have looked for relief and hope and security and everything else. Everywhere else. We have tried other things, other ways, other people, other jobs, other finances, you name it. We have tried all kinds of other things. But Christ blesses us. What we need to do is in the midst of our suffering and in our pain is to face God with the promise of Jacob and say, Lord, you promised me these blessings. Please, fulfill your promises now. Plead with God to fulfill his promises and to fill your life again and again with his love, to make the indwelling of the Holy Spirit more and more a real reality, to stand in front of these promises which are here in the text and say to God, I can't do it. I cannot pull through. I'm weak. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm discouraged. I feel hopeless. I can't not do it. You must come, God, and meet me afresh. You must open my eyes to see the great thing that you have done for me because I've forgotten He may even give you a glimpse into his eternal plan. He may. So that the joys of heaven will be so great that, another phrase, that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I am so in touch with God's love and his promises that the things of this earth, the pain, the persecution, even the great love that I have my friends and my family, the love that I have for my job, these things will all grow strangely dim. Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So friends, this is, I pray that God will help us to realize the truth of these things that we claim to have in Christ Jesus. I hope that you can start to appropriate these things for yourself. These are real truths as found in Scripture. And all of Scripture is God breathed, right? All of it. It's true. It's available to us. And I hope we can start appropriating these things so that in the midst of suffering pain and trial, we claim them as our own. These are as real as God is. And here the Apostle Paul is telling us to rejoice in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Rejoice. Even in our suffering. I hope that God will help us all to just rejoice in our great Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the winter of our lives, such that the grace will flourish in our lives. And that ultimately the only explanation For the joy that we feel and the joy that we have is rooted in the assurance of God's love for us. That's what makes God's people peculiar. And that's what makes God's people particularly different from the rest of the world. And may it be true of us. Let's pray.